This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. I believe we need to do five things. First of all, to create momentum for the Great Reset. The Great Reset is a welcome recognition that this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. The Great Reset. The Great Opportunity for Reset. The Great Reset. Great Reset. For the Great Reset we're talking about here. In short, we need a great reset. Good morning, everyone. And um, again, wonderful praise that you are here. And we we conclude uh, we conclude the series, the May Day series, uh, with the message this morning. Um, as most of you are aware, every year I undertake a series titled the May Day series. It comes under that as a, as an overall banner, and it's one dealing on prophecy. It's speaking about the things that the Bible teaches with regards to the last days. And it matches and it seeks to match that which we see in history and that which we see in, in the present world. And, um, and it's often encouraging, sometimes scary, but always having us turn to the word of God as our final reference point, our absolute authority with these wonderful things that are happening and also with regards to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings to us an urgency an urgency for the gospel, an urgency to live our lives in accordance with the gospel and with the faith that we claim. And, um, and this morning concludes a, uh, a topic that we've dealt with that I titled The Greatest Reset. You've, heard, you've all heard of The Great Reset that the World Economic Forum postulates and wants to put forward, and that's begun with the, uh, the whole COVID-19 uh, thing. And now, however... We're looking at the greatest reset of all, and that is the entrance into the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, where everything on earth is now subject to the rule and the governing of God. And that's a wonderful joy. We began the series with the first one titled The Millennium Versus the New World Order. That seems to have gotten some traction on YouTube lately, which is, which is exciting. It's good to see that. Um, we did the next one. We titled it, or I titled it, The World's Tour. It gave us a brief history, very brief history in an hour, of the entire world in accordance with the prophecy that's seen in Daniel chapter 2. You remember the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the vision of that, of that statue. And we actually saw in the next portion the, um, where the iron and the clay meets. And it found that, well, you remember it. You've got the head of gold. You've got the chest and the arms of silver, you've got the breastplate of brass, and then you've got the iron, um, both the left and the right legs, both of iron, until we meet this particular ankle point, which is 
iron and clay. It's a definitive point. And it's interesting because it's a definitive point that seems to be uh, interestingly interestingly reflected on by the people that are in control of so many things that are going on. They recognise that we've crossed a threshold. We've crossed a threshold within the world. And now you have Australian politicians speaking about the New World Order. You have the World Government Summit in 2022, the one that just recently gone by. You've currently got Davos happening in Switzerland with regards to the World Economic Forum. Also very excited about this world government that they are looking at putting into place. And it's something that we're sort of seeing happening around the world. You almost have to be blind not to be able to see it. So these are those things, and we saw that in the world tour. Then last week we looked at the Millennium Tour. We took a tour through the Millennium. We took a tour through this 1,000-year period of history that the Bible talks about. We spoke about its characteristics, what it's going to be like. We spoke about the King of Kings who's going to be ruling. We spoke about the nature of that, that it'll be a righteous kingdom. It'll, kingdom be, it'll be a kingdom filled with prosperity and economic prosperity. It'll be a kingdom where the curse that's been put on the world and on the land is going to be removed where the land will now give of its fruit, where there will be abundance, where you will be able to build houses and you will be able to dwell in them. They'll be your own. So we see these, this wonderful situation with regards to that, that final kingdom, that 1,000 years. Today, we enter into the last portion of it. I've titled it Eternal Finality. And the reason I've titled it this way is simply, it's simply because there is an end climax. We're going to be dealing with a couple of things, and I'll talk about that as I go through this, um, this particular passage. I just want to turn back in your Bibles to that passage in Revelation 21. I'm going to read a portion of it again from verse, from verse 4. Verse 4, and we're going to go to verse 8. So Revelation 21, verses 4 to 8. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, as always, as always, dear Father, I need you with me, dear Lord, to be able to present this incredible portion of Scripture, but also, dear Father, to bring an understanding, dear Lord, of the character, the nature of this millennial kingdom and to give a brief comparison, dear Father, to the things that are in the world. And I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would encourage every single one of us and that we may glorify your wonderful name and that we have learned something wonderful concerning the truth of the Scriptures. Be with us all, dear Lord, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 8 reveals a summary consummation of all things temporal. A summary consummation of all things temporal. 
And that's what Revelation 21, 1 to 8 reveals. This is the end of the matter. This is the full stop of, of history. And eternity is then entered into. This is the eternal state of all things. And they will not change from this particular point. We've undertaken our tour, both in the comparison of the millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ with the new world order, as mentioned. We've looked at the world through that particular tour that we've gone through as we've, as we've given consideration to each of those kingdoms and to see where we are today. We've also cast our eye forward to this millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, its character, its nature, that it is a thousand literal years that we see where Jesus Christ is going to be ruling and reigning literally in Jerusalem, in the temple, the fourth temple that will be built. Today, we're going to go again and make a comparison. The first is going to be based on the recognition of the desire of all people, not only to live in peace, not only to live in prosperity, but to live forever. It's an effort doomed to failure, but we need to take a brief look at it, and it is only going to be a very brief look at it. The rest of it, we're going to be moving into a different section of it. So the first point is titled simply Mortal Immortality. Next, we're going to consider and compare the life of those who enter into the Millennial Kingdom, and what I've referred to here as Millennial Mortality. Millennial, millennial mortality, those who are alive at the end of the tribulation and move into this 1,000-year reign. What's their lives going to be like? What's the character? What's the nature of things at that time? Thirdly, we're going to be talking about a very strange aspect that's going to be found with respect to the bride of Christ returning after the rapture with Christ to rule and to reign on earth. It's one that I've titled Immortal Eternity. Immortal Eternity. And lastly, the culmination that heads this sermon, the final state of all of mankind, eternal finality. Let's look at immortal immortality. You've got your Bibles there with you. Turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. You'll know this passage relatively well. This is the passage now where sin has now entered into the world. The fall has occurred. Satan has deceived Adam and Eve, they've partaken of the fruit and now their fall has occurred. They've not known that they were naked and yet that's, that's already occurred. God is now accosting them. In verse 17, we're going to be reading from verse 17 to 24. God now speaking here to Adam. And I want you to have a look at something really curious towards the end of this passage. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, 
Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There has never been a time in history as far as we know where man has not personally desired immortality. As far as we know and as far as we're aware throughout history, man has desired to live longer than the years that are appointed to him to live. But the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And I would hasten to think that that may be a reason why man desires to extend their mortality towards an immortal state that they would never have to face that judgment. There's something deep within them that gives them an understanding that that may be the end or there can be simply that their constant desire is to live their best life now. Those especially who are in prosperity, those who are doing relatively well within their lives, those who have very limited troubles and we know that the wicked can find themselves certainly in that state. The Bible teaches us that as well, that the wicked also prosper and there's no bands within their death but their strength is firm right up until the end, the text tells us. Yet there's this crossing over that threshold of life which sees judgment upon them and that becomes their end. But they desire to live their best life. They desire to live forever. Verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And there's a, there's a colon there. It's... The consideration, think of it this way, the consideration of man living forever in a state of unredeemed sin is something that is so vile in the thought of the mind of the Lord that it can't even be spoken further against. His desire now was to stop them from taking of that tree of life. There's no point sitting there telling them, okay, well, look, all right, you, 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 I told you not to eat of the tree of conscience, the tree of knowledge, and you took of it, and that was when your perfect state. That was when you're unfallen state. And now for me to just simply command, don't take of the tree of life. I don't trust that you're not going to take of the tree of life and live forever. So he naturally sent them out of the garden, sent them out. And he'd also placed their cherubims, powerful angels with a flaming sword, keeping the way of the tree of life. There's no defined text telling us of man's desire to live forever but there certainly can be a justified implication in this passage that might evidence the case of it. Place this together with man's natural fear of death as the ultimate enemy, also his fear of judgment hereafter, his desire to remain alive for as long as possible, again, to enjoy his best life now. Who said that? Ah, oh, a man who says he's a Christian. Got it, got it. Wants to live his best life now, not least of which his ongoing burden to have a name that extends forever, to leave a legacy, a legacy. How many people want to have streets named after them, towns named after them, suburbs named after them. They want to live a good life that they have immortality through their children. I've heard plenty of atheists refer to things that way. And they think, you know, as soon as their name vanishes from their children, then there's no name to carry on for them. There's an inner desire for immortality, to live forever, to make a name for themselves. Where do we see that in Scripture? 
Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 verses 1 to 4, it's what we refer to as the time where the languages of the world had changed. We're of all of one language at this time. Verse 1, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and there, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly, thoroughly, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. This desire of man to live forever, we see it in a real practical way. We see people desiring to live forever. We refer to that today as transhumanism. Some of you might have heard the phrase transhumanism. We're not going to be dwelling on this very long, but I do need to bring it up, that you would have an understanding that man's desire today is to live forever. Transhumanism, according to our faithful, trusty source of reference, Wikipedia, Too many people that know too many things in this church. Transhumanism, according to Wiki, says, is a philosophical and intellectual movement which advocates for the enhancement of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies that can greatly enhance longevity and cognition. It also predicts the inevitability of such technologies in the future. The idea about transhumanism is a work at transposition, transformation, completely transforming the human character and nature. It's not only happening within a very practical sense within the world through science and through technology, it's also happening through the idea of an ongoing progression of evolution. Not something now by natural selection, but something that can be guided by a knowing hand something that can be changed within man, that man can continue to live forever. This technology, however, is not something that's going to be available to, you know, the plebs. It's not going to be available to the common folk. It's only going to be available to those who have the means of procuring it. And that was spoken about by a gentleman by the name of Yuval Noah Harari. Some of you may know that name. Some of you cringe at the thought of that name. And those of you who have seen him speak and heard his speeches and recognise the power and the influence that he has over the World Economic Forum, over in members like Klaus Schwab, would also recognise that is not a name that is to be endeared We at all. are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens, because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies and brains and minds. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data. Now, why is data so important? It's important because we've reached the point when we can hack not just computers, we can hack human beings and other organisms. Now, what do you need in order to hack a human being? You need two things. You need a lot of computing power and you need a lot of data especially biometric data. But control of data might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. 
By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. All of life for four billion years, dinosaurs, amoebas, tomatoes, humans, all of life was subject to the laws of natural selection and to the laws of organic biochemistry. But this is now about to change. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. Klaus Schwab spoke directly with regards to this. He was interviewed and he said, we will be changed. Those of you who know Klaus Schwab, he is the founder and uh, director of the World Economic Forum. He said, we will be changed. Not what we do, but we will be changed through a genetic editing. And you see, the difference of this first uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take a genetic editing, right. uh, just as an example, it's you who exactly. are changed. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this has a big impact on yeah. your identity. Yeah. The whole idea of a guided evolutionary progress of mankind is something that is at the forefront of what's known as the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, if those of you who don't have the book, get the book and read it. Authored by Klaus Schwab, it was before his present book, which is oh, COVID-19, The Great Narrative, sorry, before that one, COVID-19, The Great Reset. This is done in 2016 from memory. It's only 184 pages long, very short book, but it gives you an understanding that changing the very nature of humanity is at the forefront of it. Whether it's trying to change the transform the mind and have the mind put into a machine that you may live forever. There's been plenty of movies that have been created with this particular idea in mind. He speaks about gene therapy. Noah Harari actually referred to this as human beings being hackable animals. Human beings now can be hacked. Their DNA can be hacked. They can be changed. They can be transformed. And in response to this, we have what's referred to as mRNA technology. It's a technological advancement that's been created a little while ago, but still under incredible amount of examination and um, experimentation that's been put into the current vaccines, or they refer to them as vaccines for COVID-19. They've never been successful. In, in their testing phases, they've only ever destroyed the animals that they were put into. Uh, these are the Moderna's. This is the Pfizer product. This is those. They are mRNA technology. They are there designed to actually infuse within the genetic structure of man a toxin that can be released from the genes themselves in order to so-called fight the virus. And yet what we have seen is that they do nothing of the kind. They seem to have no effect on the virus itself. Any, any, other, any one of us would have recognised this. All we needed to do was look at the data. We simply see that every single nation around the world who has had a mass vaccination program, what's happened? Has it reduced the amount of infections? Hasn't reduced them. Actually, the opposite has occurred. Almost directly in line with the amount of P 
people that have been so-called vaccinated, we've had an increase of infections. Have they stopped people from actually getting the virus? No, they haven't stopped people from getting the virus. Have they minimised the amount of illness that people have, have had with regards to the virus? There is no information whatsoever that, that proves that. The data in itself actually shows otherwise. Well, what are they? They are a technology that is essentially referred to as gene therapy. They've had to change the definition of vaccine in order to have that uh, promoted and then sold within the nations of the world. This is something that we've witnessed. Added to that now, we have also another technology, a company called Neuralink. Has anybody heard of Neuralink? Neuralink is a, is a company whose co-founder is Elon Musk, Elon Musk, and it's designed, it's a technology that's designed to actually place very fine threads of technology directly within the brains of individuals to have them connected, to have them connected, to be able to interfere with their thoughts, to be able to do a work within their, within their brains, to have them connected. It's there to enhance their ability to think, but it's also there to, to move towards, you know, fixing people with certain brain damage and brain conditions. All of these, all of these technologies have out on the surface a semblance of humanitarian and beneficial outcomes, but they don't speak about the negative outcomes. They don't speak about the end goal of these things. Anybody that wants to know a little bit more about transhumanism should probably look at um, Billy Crone actually has, a, Pastor Billy Crone has a uh, website, um, Get a Life Now Ministries. And on that, he's got a number of videos with regards to that. Now, I don't endorse Billy Crone completely at all. Um, there are some things that are a little bit out there, but he does a great job with regards to this entire thing of transhumanism. So if, if you want to really get frightened, Billy Crone. Get Billy Crone and have a look at some of, his, uh, some of his material that's on there. The point that I'm trying to make here is man has had a desire for immortality from the beginning. Now we have an effort within this fourth industrial revolution that we will have through this mini reset a complete transformation of humankind. And one of the first ways of doing it is by obviously injecting everybody in the world with a, an RNA or a DNA type of medical condition, a gene therapy, an effort in that regard. Noah Harari, his website homepage, you can click on it. I'll leave the link in the description on the, um, on the, on the website. On his homepage, big title right down the bottom says this, history began when humans invented gods and will end when humans become gods. Quite astounding, isn't it? This is an individual who has direct relations with those elites that are governing the things that are going on in the world today. That's what he has on his website. I was astounded when I saw it, to be honest. I was just looking him up. just want to know a little bit more about him. And there it is, plain as day, like, doesn't even hide it, plain as day. He has it on there. So this is what we see as mortal immortality, a desire for mortals to have immortality. It's an idea that's gone on forever. Now, that's done, dusted. I'm going to be putting that to the side. I'm going to be concentrating now on what's actually going to be there in the millennial kingdom. Millennial mortality. Genesis chapter 5. Actually, worth turning there. Turn there with me. Genesis chapter 5. Have a look. Millennial mortality. 
an incredible curiosity that we will see in the millennial kingdom. And in a sense, it's related to here. Genesis chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first five verses. It gives you a bit of an insight. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son and his, in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth, 912 years and he died. Enos, his son, 905 years and he died. Cain and his son, 910 years and he died. Mahalaliel, 895 years and he died. Yared was 962 years and he died. Enoch was 365 years and he was not. For God took him. And Methuselah, 969 years and he died. Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible, yet he died before his father. Now, it's something that we do at Sunday school. Did you get it? Methuselah, not, he's the oldest man in the Bible, but he died before his father. Who was his father? Come on, who was his father? Just read him. Enoch. Enoch didn't die, did he? God took him. That's meant to be funny. Right, a lively crowd. <laughs> lively crowd. Lamech was 777 years and he died. What do all these men have in common apart from Enoch, who's still living? They all lived long lives and then they died. They all lived long lives. What else do these men all have in common? They all lived their lives before the deluge. This is the life of the antediluvian world. This is the lives of individuals who lived prior to the flood. We don't have an understanding of this because we live this side of the flood. But on that side of the flood, they seem to have lived incredibly long lives. We look at that today from a perspective of man living three score and ten years, and if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet their strength and labour is in sorrow. This is the world that we live in today where we are soon cut off and we fly away. We live today 70 years, 80 years, perhaps 90 years, and yet our lives are shortened. Now, in those days, if they were to look at the world that was to come, they would think, my goodness, they don't live long to get things done, do they? And we try and get everything done within the few short years that we have. But in those days, they were long time frames. They were long years. In those days, men who had lived, had lived an average of years where they would look at today's world and think, so short, so short a lifespan. See, something changed after the flood. The years of man's life began to gradually reduce over time until ultimately it is to what it is today. And if you were to plot the ages of the fathers during that potential time, particular time, you'll notice that there's an interesting relationship to an exponential decay of life 
And that's exactly what we have. We have an exponential decay curve happening within our own lives. And we no longer live long lives. Why? Well, it's a great, great question. One of those reasons may be to limit sin. God had actually said that after the flood, he'd actually spoken. He said that the mind of man is to just do sin continually. There is nothing pure within the mind of man. So he limits the years of man. He has us sleep for a third of the day. He has us live our lives literally a tenth of what they were before. And this is again to limit sin. Could you imagine, could you imagine if the lives of Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, or Jacinta Ardern, Daniel Andrews, Emmanuel Macron, Barack Obama, Justin Trudeau, or even Klaus Schwab, could you imagine their lives extended to 700, 800 years? What misery there would be within this world. So God had chosen to shorten the lives of man. It's an incredible thing that we see, but in the millennium, there's a different constitution. In the millennium, something has changed. First, we see Satan is bound in the millennial kingdom. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, first three verses there. He writes and he says, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So we see first and foremost that the devil, together with his angelic horde, are bound for a thousand years. They're bound in a pit. They're bound and they're set and there's a seal set upon them and they cannot deceive the world until the thousand years are up and then they'll be loose for a little season. So we see that the desires that we have for our fleshly desires that can actually be enhanced by the devil's own deceptions, that's going to be limited. That's something that we see within the millennial kingdom. What else? We also see that holiness will reign. Have a look at verse 4. It says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There is going to be a natural limitation of sin upon the earth when the pure standard of the law of God sits upon the throne in Jerusalem. There is going to be a limitation of sin. That which is sinful is going to be seen as sinful. That which is evil is going to be identified by the people of the world as evil. And with Satan bound, there is going to be a limitation against our deceptive excuses that we use in order to justify our own sin. Man will see evil as evil. They will see sin as sinful. And they will have a constant standard of the moral law represented in the one whose name is called the word of God. He's going to be there. He will be there and his church will be there ruling and reigning with Christ. Yet there will still be death in the millennium. There will be a millennial mortality to still contend, contend with. That'll be there. 
Isaiah 65. Turn there, turn there. It's good to turn there. It's a great passage, this one. Isaiah chapter 65. Four verses we'll read there. You may see it for yourself. Again, remember this is second last chapter in the book of Isaiah. Remember I spoke about this last time. I spoke about how Isaiah can be such an incredible representation of the entire books of the Bible. 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible. Isaiah has a distinctive break point at the 39th book, the end of the 39th book. The 40th book begins a very a very incredible change in the theme, in the in the tone of the book of Isaiah. We have 39 books of the Old Testament. The New Testament begins with the 40th book. Distinctive tone in the entire Bible. Incredible study when you look at it. Here in 65, chapter 65, verse 20, it says there, there shall be no more thence an infant of an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And they shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands, and they shall not labour in vain nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. How long are the days of a tree? Generally a lot longer than our lives. Um, got a family within this church that bought themselves a turtle. Um, the turtle lives a long time. I'm looking at seeing the end of the days of my pets. But that wouldn't happen if I bought a turtle. It would likely outlive me. But a tree, a tree can be up for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. We were, in, uh, we were in Jerusalem. We were in the Garden of Gethsemane in 2012. And there were trees that would have been there during the time of Christ. They were at least 2,000 years old, these olive trees. And olive trees can indeed grow that long. We ended up going uh, a few years ago, Maria and I went to Singapore. And in the botanical, there's a beautiful botanical structure within Singapore, a building there, and they've actually imported some of these trees. These trees are two and a half, three thousand years old, these olive trees. Incredible years. But we're not expecting life to be longer than a thousand years. The period here we're discussing is the millennial reign of Christ. And it'll be a time when men will see out their years. They will see out their years. Yet during the millennium there will be mortality. People will die. So you'll be born in in the millennial kingdom. So this is how it's going to work. You have people, the saints of the Lord, who survive the tribulation period. They enter into the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns with his church and with the angels of heaven. And they who are there, who live during that time, will have children. And those who have children will grow up and they will see out their years. They will still need to be saved, beloved. They will still need to be born again. They will still need to identify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is now ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. Yet there will be rebellion at the end of that time. We recognise that. There's a hint in the scriptures with regards to Satan being loosed for a little season. And if you want to have a little bit more of a picture of that, have a look at Psalm 2. And when you read Psalm 2, read Psalm 2 as a conversation within the Trinity. 
because that seems to be the only way you can actually make sense of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the kings of the earth imagine a vain thing, he says. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh, will have them in derision. And it goes on and it speaks, and yet he has set his king upon his holy throne in Zion. Oh, that's speaking about the end of this millennial reign. Speaking about that time, after which God will destroy the earth and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So what we have here is a time where man will see out his years. During that millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, something else will occur. This is one of the reasons why it is such an important period of time. It's fundamentally there to fulfill the promises that God had made to Israel. None of the promises that God had made to Israel and given to Israel had been fulfilled yet apart from the coming of Christ. During their practical lives, with regards to the promise made for the land, the prosperity of the land and all that, all that can only be fulfilled and is fulfilled in the millennium. That's another reason why that millennial reign is there. There's another reason it's there. There's another reason it's there. And again, this is a a brief history. In the beginning, God had given man One command, one command. Obey that one command and you'll live in prosperous fellowship with me forever. Man broke that command. Now man is in sin. God then selected a people, the Hebrew people, the Hebrew nation. He gave them a divine law and he promised them, live according to that divine law and you will have prosperity. You will be blessed for the rest of your days. But the sinful nature of man rising up could not see that prosperity because they found themselves in captivity. They found themselves still enduring idolatry. They found themselves still doing all this stuff that was against the law of the Lord. God promised the Messiah, a saviour that would come, that would remove their sin from them and that they would have an opportunity now to be able to live the life of the law with the law of God written within their hearts. They might be saved and the law of God written in their hearts, that heart of, of stone would be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh They would have an understanding of the sinful nature and they would have the Holy Spirit within them. What a wonderful blessing, isn't it? Jesus Christ came and he died on that cross and he paid the sins, paid for the sins of all the people of the world. And everybody who put their faith in Christ that are born again, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within them. Oh, no, not just the Holy Spirit. God the Father comes and dwells within them. Oh, no, it's not just God the Father either. It's actually God the Son. We have the entire triunity of God indwelling those who are born again. The law of God now written on our hearts. Now when we sin, we mourn our sin, not excuse it. We now mourn our sin. There's a change in the constitution of this, and yet we still struggle with sin. And we look at the church today, and the church is falling away. The church is moving largely in apostasy. So all these different sections of the world has been demonstrating to man the sinful nature of man and the holiness of God. Man has had every single opportunity to live perfect lives before a holy God, and yet man continues to fall and betray that word. Now we have a perfect constitution. See, today we can sit there and say, oh, you know, devil made me do it. You know, devil got into my head, you know, deceived me. You know, and because of that, he slew me. You know, I found myself now in sin. But during that millennial period of time, there will be no devil to contend with. He'll be bound. People think that he's, we're in the millennium now. Far out. Now we're in the millennium. 
this is the millennium. If this is the millennium and Satan is bound, his chain is way too long. This is not the millennial kingdom of Christ. This is not what the Bible talks about. No, it's there to test man and to have man recognize their sinful nature because even at the end of that millennial reign of Christ, a perfect 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens to man? They still rebel, still rebel. Immortal eternity. The next portion here, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Immortal eternity. We've got an interesting situation happening within the millennial kingdom. Revelation 19 verses 5 to 14. I'll read that. It says, And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants. And ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness doth he, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Immortal eternity. Here we have a body of people returning with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ and they're riding what? White horses, white horses. It's really fascinating because as you look through this particular study, you're thinking, was well, this talking about angels or is this talking about people? Is it talking about angels or people? The only way to be able to know that with absolute certainty, well, the interesting thing is, let me rephrase, let's bring this back. God, Jesus Christ spoke about returning with angels. Right? We see that in Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. In Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. But angels are never depicted in the scriptures wearing linen. Jesus is, however. Jesus is depicted wearing linen, but never angels. Angels are never depicted in the Bible as riding horses. Chariots, chariots they ride within the scriptures. We see them riding chariots, but never horses. So we're always looking to the scriptures themselves to see an answer to some of these questions. These also are not caught up in the rapture of the Lord. There are those who are caught up in the rapture of the Lord when the, before the trouble on earth begins who are to come back with him to execute judgment upon all. Turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. You're in Revelation. 
It's the book just before the book of Revelation. It's only one chapter, so you might miss it. Probably only one page in your books, depending on how big your font is. Catherine, you might have five pages to contend with. Jude 14 and 15, have a look what it says there. Speaks about Enoch prophesying. Jude 14, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The famous passage representing the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4 also speaks to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. You've got to go sort of halfway between the book of Acts and the book you're currently in to find 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 14. Paul writes here saying, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring, what does it say? With him, with him. So you were already in Revelation 19. Have a look at verse, uh, have a look at verse chapter 20, verse 6. Chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So what do we make of all this? Well, we've already seen and witnessed that there will be a millennial mortality within that kingdom. There will be those who will enter in through the tribulation that they will have children and they will have children and they will endure and live long lives after which they will die. But we also see something else here and we see an immortal eternity. We see a people who have already died who now live and die no more. We see a people who have died once and lived twice. Completely separated. These are the people in the first resurrection. Completely separated from the people who live once and die twice. Those that suffer the second death. Here we have a people who have returned with the Lord Jesus Christ who are immortal. Now, the Bible doesn't actually give us any real indication on how this is going to be constituted within the earth. Are they going to be replacing the work of the angelic realm? I mean, it's really interesting because what do we see today? We still live today with immortals. They're immortals. They don't necessarily, well, they can manifest as men apparently, but we know that the angels rule the governing principalities over the world today. Most of them are fallen angels, I would say. The Bible says that they are princes and principalities of the world. We see the Bible refer to them in a number of different passages within the scriptures as those who are ruling over different um, nations around the world. Is it going to be the same as that? I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. The Bible says we are going to be taking that role. 
Those who are the church are going to be caught up with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says they will return and rule with Christ. This is a really freaky sort of, I mean, it's a hard one to get your head around. Are we going to be manifesting, our, uh, manifesting ourselves in the, in the, with our glorious bodies just like the Lord Jesus Christ did when he came and he appeared to the disciples? Do you remember that? We're going to come back and we're going to be able to eat and drink. Man, I hope so. There's some really good food out there that I'm going to miss. But, you know, will that be the case? It might be the case. We really don't know because the, the Bible doesn't actually make that part of it clear. It does make clear, however, that we are going to be a part of this millennium. Now, there are those who teach otherwise. There are those who, uh, including, and and really sadly, and I don't know why, um, Dwight Pentecost wrote the book uh, Things to Come. Um, Man who I I, I truly respect uh, and a really great scholar when it comes to uh, teaching about you know, what the Bible says about the, the coming years. And he's, he's been able to grab hold of a lot of the writings from other individuals and been able to demonstrate really clearly the, the position that we hold with regards to the premillennial eschatology, uh, the, the understanding of the last days. But he gets also confused on this particular point because he agrees with, in part with another individual who just can't comprehend the idea that immortals are going to be dwelling with mortals on the earth during that time. Again, the Bible doesn't specifically state that anywhere, but we certainly will be a part of this millennial kingdom. He holds the idea that these immortals, you and I, who will be returning with Christ if you are born again, um, will be in the heavenly Jerusalem. But the heavenly Jerusalem doesn't appear until Revelation 21. So that's until after there's a new heaven and a new earth. And it doesn't make sense either because Jesus Christ is actually going to be physically ruling and reigning on earth. It doesn't make any sense that we wouldn't also be here at that same time. Anyway, do you think that's interesting? I think it's interesting that the Bible teaches that, that we can't comprehend that because we live in this particular state at the moment is, 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 is fair enough. But that the Bible actually teaches that we were going to be back here and we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. I just I can't. And we're not going to have sin. So we're, we're going to be without sin. Um, I, I just find that incredibly exciting, you know. In part, beloved, your work here with regards to eternal reward will be over at the time of the rapture. So when the rapture of the church happens, there'll be no more work for you to do. And everything that you have done up until that point will receive their required reward during this particular time in the millennium. But you still, so you still have work to do. You still have work to do. I find that exciting. The question that I'll ask you with regards to that is, are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? Are you born again? Do you know Christ? Are you going to be there? Are you going to be part of this kingdom? Last point, it's a short one. Eternal finality. Revelation 20, verse 11. I'm going to just read that through to 21, verse 4. Because I want you to see this is the end picture. This is the complete summary of the end and how it enters into that final, final stage. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, 
from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 21 verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. This is the eternal finality. This is where all things come to their final and eternal state and will never change. Satan here is together with those who are trying to make their heaven on earth without Christ, cast into hell and then into the lake of fire and into the outer darkness. And there they will be for all eternity. Nothing will change their state. There will be no hope. There is no hope. Dante's famous book, The Inferno, has that sign over the tops of the gates of hell saying, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. There is no hope once death comes. There is no hope at that point. If you are not saved and you are saved from your sins now, you will be cast into hell and into that judgment and into that lake of fire, and it will be for all eternity. There's Jonathan Edwards who actually said, if all the sands on all the beaches of all the worlds were put into an hourglass and every grain of sand was one year long, you would have hope. You would have hope of relief at the end. But eternity, there is no such hope. It is a permanent and eternal state. Can you understand the urgency? Can you understand the urgency? Does it it not sort of make you sick within? Doesn't it grieve you within? Doesn't it give you this burden for the people? I mean, we, we sit comfortable in our hope of salvation that we have been given by Christ. We sit comfortable in this. Why sit there? Is there not a work to do? Is there not an urgency for the lost? Is there not a burden for the lost? There are those, and I would justify what they say with regards to their claim against Christians who say, you don't actually believe what you believe. What you say you believe, you don't actually believe because if you actually believed what you believed with regards to hell, you'd be crawling on broken glass on hands and knees to share the word of hope with other people, but you don't believe it really. If you did, that's what you'd do. This is the eternal state. It won't change. It won't change. And as glorious as heaven is, hell will be its exact opposite. Heaven will be filled with light. Hell would be utter darkness, a darkness that can be felt. 
Heaven will be filled with joy and peace and comfort. And hell will be filled with torment. There are complete opposites. There's no partying in hell. I don't know. People get this idea that we're all going to get together with our buddies and we're all going to be playing lead guitars and all that sort of stuff. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. The solitary confinement that people can't endure here on earth will be endured in hell for all eternity. This is that eternal state. This is the lake of fire. This is the second death. And these are for those who are not found written in the book of life. But a new heaven and a new earth will remain for the final fellowship with Christ in an eternal, absolute and perfect joy. It'll be happiness forever and ever for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Saviour and as their Lord. Friends, never has there been a greater opportunity. There's never been a greater opportunity than you have today. There's never been a greater time in history that we are in today. There's never been a greater sense of urgency that as we see the day approaching that we are to do the blessed work of the Lord in sharing the gospel of his grace. It's good news. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. But there are those who are in a desperate state. I'm sure each one of you will be willing to help somebody out that's in trouble along the road as you drive. Um, a brother and I were, were driving back from work one day and he saw a guy struggling with his car and he goes, let's pull over and give him a push. We're happy to do that, aren't we? We're happy to do that. What about just sharing a tract? What about just mentioning something about the Lord Jesus Christ to help them out of their eternal state? What about giving them an opportunity to make the decision? The world has crossed over until this final kingdom. The leaders of the world know it. The people of the world know it, know something dramatic has changed. The publicity around the world acknowledges it. And the father is right now preparing to send his son to catch his bride away. That is the joy that we have. That is the blessing that we have. But mixed together with that is a burden that we should all have for the lost. It's a burden that we need to have for the people that are here. The people that will be left behind. I pray that this challenges you to consider how you're living life, to consider what you're putting as priority in your life. Time's short. Lord's coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in these things, dear Lord, as we bring out what the Scriptures teach, I ask and pray to your Father that you would impact every single life here, one that they may know where they stand before a holy God, the other, dear Lord, that they may also have a burden for the lost to share the joy and the hope of Christ to all, all people. Those, dear Lord, who would ask us a hope that is within us, but also those who are just by our sides. I ask and pray, dear Lord, that we would have a love for them more than a love for our own selves and that in every way, dear Lord, we would have a burden for the lost, that your kingdom and your marriage supper shall be filled with those who love you. We thank you for this time. We ask you, dear Lord, go with us and bless us, I pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.